cliffcentral.com Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com Good afternoon. You're on air with the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, I'll be your host for the next hour. My name is Kingsley Kipuri. I'm joined in studio by my usual brother in arms, Greg Nicholson. Always good to have you with me. Greg, I think you're following the cricket, man. I hear some really exciting stuff is happening over there. This is just because I'm Australian. You think I like cricket. Man, it's going down, dude. He's, he took 100 wickets and he got 10 balls. Who was that? Kahiso Rabada. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm all I'm over with this. You. Now I'm with I'm you. I'm all over this, man. Okay, now let's actually talk about things that we know a bit more about. We'll be... Talking on a few stories from around the country um, Around the world actually Around the world, yeah that makes a bit more sense Firstly talking about police brutality and protests in Ethiopia um, There were plans to extend the municipal boundaries of Addis Ababa And that, those plans have been met with a lot of backlash And there's a lot of protesting And, and some people reported dead there So it's quite, quite, quite worrying and something to really watch um, Secondly, it's the 5th anniversary of the Arab Spring so we're gonna look back at that, you know, really, really momentous occasion a couple of years ago, and just and 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 look at what things are like now. Various countries were involved. A lot of that happened and was centered around Egypt. So we're gonna be touching on that specifically, and, and look at how things stand now. And lastly, we're gonna be looking at lead poisoning, what I mistakenly called LED poisoning before. It's actually lead poisoning from water in Flint, Michigan. Um, I, I like the idea that it could be LED poisoning, as though <laughs> as though there are TVs in the Flint, Michigan River. I mean, I mean, televisions are the devil, man. So it's, uh, it's very possible. So we'll be looking at that, and you know, I've been seeing a lot of rappers donating water. So you know, maybe that's you know, that's something to. That's not important. Sure, sure. He's also donated something like 150,000 bottles of Big water. Sean. So, you know, everybody's coming up. If you want to talk to us, tweet us at DMShowsRA. You can call us on 0861455189, but just don't call us when we're talking to somebody else because then it'll be weird. Anyway. That's not that weird. Call time in. to get to it. Time to get to it. First, we're going to be talking about Ethiopia. As I mentioned, there were plans to extend the boundaries of Addis Ababa into the neighboring region, and that's really caused a lot of issues. So we'll be talking to somebody who knows a lot more about this. I think we have him on the phone now. Uh, Felix Horn, the Horn of Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch. Felix, can you hear us? Yes, we can. Okay, perfect. Sorry, I know the time difference is a bit cruel, but thank you for making time for us. Sorry, say again? Um, I'm saying thanks for joining us, Felix. Thanks. It's good to be here. Okay, perfect. So, so just to start with, I mean, we've seen, you know, since, you know, sort of last year, we've seen protests and some people being reported dead from this, this sort of this extension of the boundaries of Addis Ababa. So it seems like something that just sort of a municipal thing and it's happening and it's causing such an uproar. So could you just explain to us what's going on with this extension and why is it causing so much sort of uproar and protesting? Yeah, so since November, we've seen these large-scale protests sweep throughout Jeromia, so Ethiopia's largest region. And ostensibly, what, what the protests were about when it started was that this municipal boundary expansion of Addis Ababa would lead to the displacement of Oromo farmers. And as, as farmers have experienced in different parts of Oromia, that displacement usually occurs without any compensation uh, whatsoever and without any consultation about the lost land and the lost livelihood. So that's sort of how it started, and then over time, as the security forces cracked down against those peaceful protesters, the protests have become about so much more. Um. So why would why would why would there be an intention to displace the farmers and and take their land? What why would the state or the government do this? And why why do you think what's behind this? What is being said as a sort of consistent displacement of these farmers? Well, Ethiopia's uh, GDP is growing rapidly, and everything about Ethiopia right now is about development. The government's very fond of promoting its development successes. Uh, the state-run media is just filled with images of, of, of you know, shiny buildings and, and, and new roads. Mm. Um, and the individuals that live on those lands where this, this sort of industrial expansion is happening uh, are just kind of seen as an externality. So, okay. uh, you know, the government wants to promote agriculture that results in uh, in exports of, of, of different commodities. They don't want to promote sort of the smallholder uh, food security that has been the, the mainstay of uh, of, um, of Oromo farmers for generations. So they just seen sort of an externality, something... I feel the weight of responsibility enormously, not some... ...economic growth. Hmm. Um, and, I mean, and what's your thoughts, just based on your research, what are, what is your thoughts on this on this trade-off we're seeing in Ethiopia between development and rapid economic growth? versus the, the, the human rights and the freedom of speech, and, and in this case, even some of the livelihoods of some of the surrounding farmers? 
Well, I think what we have to realize is that this this, this growth that they're talking about, I mean, it's not sustainable. When you have a when you have a government that promotes development, and you have a population that that's rising up because they're not receiving the benefits of development, it's just not sustainable. I mean, although there's there's little doubt that Ethiopia is making significant economic gains, you know, what we see on a daily basis is we interview all kinds of people who have been forced to flee Ethiopia because they were arrested. Uh, for questioning development, or they're, they were arrested because they demanded compensation, or they were displaced from their lands, they had no way to feed themselves, so they fled the country, um, or they're, they're, you know, they're living, many of them are working as laborers on the farms, the commercial farms that they formerly, uh, that they formerly grew food on. So there's, there's you know, if Ethiopia cares about long-term sustainable economic growth, it will begin involving local communities as partners in development rather than just seeing them as sort of an obstacle to be dealt with to pursue their economic agenda. Felix, somewhere I think we saw the statistic um, that as many as perhaps 150,000 farmers in the Aroma region have been have been moved off their land over the last 10 years. Is that statistic accurate? And what actually happens to these farmers when they're moved off, the, off their land? Where do they go? What do they do after that? Yeah, it's difficult to know the exact number of individuals that have been uh, displaced in the last in the last number of years, largely because it's, it's very difficult to go on the ground. And, and just the moment an international NGO does this, their their the researchers are targeted. The people they talk to are arrested. Uh, local NGOs have been uh, have been severely suppressed. There's very few local NGOs that can do that kind of research. And independent media has a very difficult time in Ethiopia too. So it's very difficult to ascertain the accuracy of that number. But it's very clear that there are significant amounts of, of farmers in Aromia and elsewhere who are being displaced for for uh, for this um, for the economic growth. Most of those farmers um, go to live in other parts of the country with relatives and just kind of become a living. Mm. We hear a lot of reports of others who are offered jobs as watchmen or laborers on the land that uh, that they previously owned, and uh, a lot of people flee the country and live as refugees in, in neighboring countries. Oh, I hear you, and we're seeing just you know so much protesting happening. I'm, 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 I've been just reading the research and the report, and it sounds like a lot of the protests and opposition is coming from from students. So I'm curious if you could just tell us a bit about the role of sort of young people and 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 students in 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 the protests and the sort of anti Addis Ababa extension uh, movement. Yeah, so I mean, in the early days of the protest, it was elementary school students, it was uh, secondary school students that were protesting. And since that time, it's it's tried to involve other members of the Roma society. But you know, there were a number of cases where uh, where uh, security forces are just firing randomly into crowds. Um, we documented many cases where, after the protest, soldiers were going door to door and trying to arrest students um, who may or may not have been involved in these peaceful protests. And it's uh, you know, there's there's a lot of examples of, of in that attempt to arrest where young children were were killed. So certainly, this is taking a and Felix, I've read that Human Rights Watch has estimated that approximately 140 people were killed during the recent protests. If it's so hard to be on the ground, how are you able to get accurate figures from that area? Yeah, so what, I mean, what the, the, the information that we wrote was, was that 140 people were killed according to activists. Um, so we're not suggesting there's 140, but certainly when you look at the... Uh, the information we have managed to gather from individuals we talked to on the ground, the individuals that we talked to in neighboring countries who have fled the violence, and from the you know hundreds and hundreds of social media clips that have been posted online. I mean, I think it's, it's likely that 140 is a very conservative number at this point in time. And according to, so we have a, sort of these students who are quite, I guess, dissatisfied with the government and, and the trajectory of the development in terms of how it's, how they're excluded from that development and, and being negatively affected. But how is the sentiment, do you know, across different sectors of Ethiopian society? Is there a sort of a broader challenge to the, to the, this, this very strong state that, that could, we, we could see increased protests across, across different sectors of society? Or, or are many Ethiopians quite happy with, with the way the de- development is, you know, steamrolling ahead? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think the Ethiopian government doesn't allow dissent of any type. You know, so they have various techniques that they use to to uh, um, ensure that people are loyal to the party, that people are, are, are members of the of the ruling party. So there's really no sort of um, avenue or forum for people to express displeasure with any government policy. And 
you know, there's many, many examples of individuals arrested just for merely questioning mm. whether or not Ethiopia is on the, the correct development trajectory. Um, and so what that means is when there's no ability for people to, to express dissent, you know, there's no independent media, there's no independent civil society that can work these types of issues, then you begin to, to create the conditions where this sort of large-scale um, uprising that we're seeing in Aromia can happen. Um, so unless the, develop, the, the development trajectory changes, unless mm. Ethiopia you know, genuinely consults with local communities, I think, yeah, it is something that you could see spread to other parts of, uh, of Ethiopia. I mean, the most important thing to an Ethiopian farmer, whether it's a Roma or otherwise, is their land. I mean, it's their identity, it's their culture, it's the means to, uh, to feed themselves. When you take that away without any compensation, I mean, you're just creating a, a, a formula for instability long-term. I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on, on, the, on this particular situation where it sounds like the government's plans to extend the, the, the borders of Addis Ababa, you know, have been put on hold or, or cancelled. Um, do you see that as a genuine sort of acceptance that the will of the people is against this? Or do you just see it as a, okay, this is causing too much trouble, we'll be back in some other form? Yeah, no, uh, yeah, exactly. I think the first thing is that, I mean, it, it came too late. By the time that they announced the cancellation of the master plan, I mean, the, the protests had become about so much more. It had become about the use of excessive force by, court, by uh, security forces. It had become about sort of historical or Roman grievances, and those are much more difficult for the, for the government to deal with. So if they had sort of announced the cancellation of the master plan much earlier in the protest, maybe it would have quelled things, but we haven't seen any difference or any significant difference on the ground. Uh, both in terms of the, the, the protesters and also the reaction of the security forces. It just seems business as usual. The master plan hasn't made any significant difference. Uh, the other thing I would say is that with or without the master plan, displacement of Oromo farmers uh, is likely to continue unless the government changes its perspective. And we see displacement of farmers and pastoralists for large-scale uh, industrial operations all across Ethiopia, and in those places there's no land use planned. So the the... The existence of the of the master plan is not uh, is not the big issue when it comes to displacement. I hear you, Felix. Thanks so much for giving us the breakdown. Um, it's definitely a story we'll com- continue to follow, and of course, continue to read your writing and great work on this over Human Rights Watch. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Okay. okay. Perfect. That's us talking to Felix Horn, uh, the Horn of Africa Research at Human Rights Watch, who's done some excellent reporting on, on what's happening in Ethiopia and the most recent protests that we've seen. If you're just tuning in, it's a Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We're talking about the protests we've been seeing uh, in Ethiopia around the sort of extension of the borders of Ethiopia. Next of, will be of Addis. Of Addis. That would be that would be something. Imagine if they extended the borders of Ethiopia. That's a different show altogether. <laughs> anyway. Somebody who's, uh, you know, a lot more eloquent. We'll be talking to Henok Gabisa, president of the Oromo Studies Association, um, about this issue. Henok, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. Henok, I know the time difference is a bit unfriendly. Thank you for making time. Not a problem. Okay. I appreciate being invited here. Okay, perfect. Now, Henok, I mean, I'd love if you could, you know, break down for us the, if you could just break down for us um, the, 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 the demographics and the sort of ethnic background of the Oromo people and how it plays into this situation. Um, so as Felix just mentioned, a lot of this issue is not actually about just the borders of Addis and Oromia. It's actually about the background and the ethnicities of different um, sort of uh, Ethiopian tribes and, and cultures. And, and that's a, a big reason for why this has been so uh, such, such an explosive situation. So, you know, based on your work at the Oromo Studies Association, if you just give us the background and how you think it plays into this. Well, uh, thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to start with the fact that uh, Ethiopia is uh, ethnically a very diversified uh, kind of uh, country. Mm-hmm. And uh, among more than 100 million uh, uh, Ethiopian population, the Oromo people constitute uh, more than 50 million, okay. which are the majority in number. And actually, that makes them the strong political and social force, not only in Ethiopia, but also in the Horn of Africa, but for some ironic reason, they were reduced to uh, a political minority and economic minority. And if we see the current demographic uh, makeup of the country, uh, less than 6% of, uh, of, of the ethnic group in Ethiopia, which is the Tigray people, uh, possess and own uh, more than 84% of uh, the economy and rule uh, almost all uh, strong political uh, uh, activities and movements in the country, which is 
the TPL-led uh, national political system. So uh, the Oromos actually were uh, considered to be the political minority, not only uh, 25 years ago, but uh, so long uh, before 100 years uh, during the uh, long before the, imp- the time of Emperor Haile Selassie and during Minilik time. So the Oromos have always asked for a self-rule and uh, and and a local autonomy, mm. uh, which uh, which basically represents uh, their own uh, political values and virtues. Uh, but that has never been uh, uh, considered in any successive Ethiopian regime. And now, for the last 25 years, which were occupied by the current political system or regime, mm. Mm. the problem became more aggravated and exacerbated. And now we are witnessing that Oromo kids and daughters and sons are being massacred on uh, a, dro- a broad daylight on the street in Oromia just for requesting a constitutionally guaranteed uh, rights to, uh, you know, self-rule and self, uh, self, self-governance. And also the issue of private property uh, protection or land tenure system, mm. uh, which uh, the Oromos have lived on their, on their own land uh, for so many long time. But again, uh, under the guise or under the shibboleth of development and economic growth, uh, the federal government can easily uh, penetrate into their own land mm. and take their land away and then sell the land, not to the investors, but among its own elites. And then the elites of the regime would resell the land among them, among them, uh, among themselves. Uh, and that actually proved that the policy has nothing to do with development and growth, actually. And the and so the current and existing Oromo movement or mm. the hashtag Oromo protest is basically a pro-democratic and pro-development movement, which is trying to express its grievance not only about the master plan but also a long-standing grievance of uh, the Oromo of the Oromo political and the economic discrimination. So uh, if you see the uh, the political prisoners in Ethiopia, mm. more than 90% of the Ethiopian political prisoners is made up of the Oromo. Uh, and there is a nominal political party system which is put at the regional level, at the Oromo regional level, which is called the Opidio. That Opidio uh, regime uh, does not have any political legitimacy for the last 25 years. It is just basically a representative of the national political party within the Oromo. It does not represent the Oromo in the political system, mm. but it represents the political regime within the Oromo, kind of a crony, or, or you, you can call it that way. So uh, the Oromo people found themselves in a vacuum where they have to struggle for, uh, for, for their life in a peaceful, in a peaceful way. Mm. But again, uh, very unfortunately, the government uh, responded with a violent and live ammunition. That's why we had all... Uh, more than 150, uh, 150 students and farmers uh, being shot at uh, on the street, and that's what's happening. I mean, thanks for the detailed breakdown, Enoch. I mean, that was just you know incredible, sort of to sum that up in just a few minutes. Um, I mean, it sounds like you know you're boiling this down to sort of the relations between the the Tigray people who you, who you're saying are you know largely overrepresented in terms of land ownership and and power and the elite and the, and the Oromo who've been sort of marginalized for so long. So does that mean you just see this extension or this master plan to extend Addis Ababa, but you just see it as a power play, an ethnic power play against the Oromo people rather than a, a legitimate sort of economic boundary change for economic development? Well, uh, first of all, I would like to make clear that uh, uh, it, it's it's not uh, Oromo people against the Tigray people, but if you see the elites mm. in the current political system, you see them coming from the Tigray area, mm-hmm. which actually... Uh, uh, attempts to uh, paint a figure that the, the Tigray people are going to be against the Oromo. But the Oromo people understand that they are really against the system okay. which try to diminish them uh, because as much as possible we'll try to, uh, we're trying to control uh, the, the discourse in a way that the Oromo people are really fighting against a political system which is really unfair and, and comes from a single ethnic group which is the Tigray obviously. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I just want to make a point that the Tigray people, if they believe in injustice and also if they believe in inequality and justice, they need to uh, denounce what their elites are doing, actually, yeah. at the federal level. Oh, thanks for, friend, for clearing that up. Uh, now, Henok, I'm curious what you think about this argument that, that's being made in Ethiopia and some other African countries that the priority now um, for Ethiopia is actually development. And 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 the the argument is that, 
you know, there has to going to be have to be a compromise on things like human rights and civil liberty and some of those other things with the with a strong sole focus on economic development first. What do you say to that sort of argument that the government is prioritizing economic development above other things temporarily? Nothing is wrong with prior, uh, with prioritizing or yeah. with having a development as a priority. Yeah. I mean, we like development, but here is the point, though. I mean, people try to argue that uh, development is mutually exclusive to human rights protection. No, <laughs> development itself is a right. It's a fundamental human right that any human being, not only the Roma, every human being deserves. For a government to develop a country or a nation or a land or anything, it does not have to, it does not have to interfere or fundamentally violate the rights. Like, here is the point. Uh, it's African dictators and leaders who try to paint a picture that for a development to take place, mm. people's rights should be should be violated. No, development itself is a right. It's a it's a juridical and constitutional right that people deserve. But we're talking what kind of development? Are we talking about inclusive and sustainable development, or or are we talking about benefiting a, uh, a certain number of elites who take their money and run away from the country, from the continent? You know, or are we transforming the life of, of, of a society or are we just putting a lot of money or a million dollars from one pocket to the other? That, that, is, that is the concept of development that we need to redefine. Uh, if, we, if we see, for example, let's take South Africa. I studied South African constitution a long time ago. And, and I, I know there is a real problem on the ground. But again, at least constitutionally speaking, the 1996 of uh, South African constitution, which really transformed the level of uh, South African life, at least to some extent, is praised among different, different countries, uh, not for uh, benefiting a single number of people, but at least trying to empower the, uh, the social economic rights of the whole society, you know? We can debate about the implementation of it, mm. but when you come to the Ethiopia, it, it is just taking away a land from uh, more than 1.1 million Oromos who live in and around Addis Ababa, and give it to uh, and give it to a, a, a elite, uh, a certain loyal uh, people who are loyal to the elite, mm. and then these loyal people resell the land and then run away. Here is the point. Long before the policy of the current regime, the Oromo people have always produced their food and they have never been in any kind of poverty or hunger. But right now, since they started implementing the, uh, the short-sighted uh, development policy in Ethiopia, the Oromo people fell into poverty and they could not produce their land anymore. There is a credible data where whenever there is small or medium-level agricultural or, 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 or farming size, People can feed themselves, any, not only in Oromia, but anywhere in Africa. But again, because of this land grabbing, basically it's a land grabbing policy, people are reduced and diminished to being a guard for a new settler, and some of their children become shoe shiners for these settlers, and their wife become a housemate, basically. So uh, can we call this a development? That is the question that every African citizen yeah. had to answer these days. I mean, I hear you. I mean, you know, just listening to all this, I mean, I suppose the big question is, you know, what do you think needs to happen now? Um, I'd love to hear what you think needs to happen in the short term, firstly, just to resolve the, the current tension that we've seen with the protests. And then secondly, in the longer term, to sort of resolve some of the ethnic issues you've raised and the, and the, and sort of some of the poverty then and lack of inclusive economic development that people are experiencing. What do you think needs to happen now? Well, uh, when it started, the Oromo protest has actually a very simple and brief uh, demand mm -hmm. that uh, it put forward to the government. Number one, the Oromo people's right to self-rule and self-determination, which is a local autonomy, should be constitutionally respected. That is not something new. It's something which is already within the constitution, and that should be made by the government, number one. And the other is the Oromo right to private property and, and a secure land tenure, should also be observed and protected by the government. The government has to take its hands off of the Oromo land and let the Oromo people develop themselves. And then the third is the, the language right, which language and cultural right. For example, I told you that the Oromo people are the majority. They are about 50 million people in Ethiopia. But if you see the federal language, it is not their language. Because of the language, which is the Amharic, it is, it is the language that does not belong to the Oromo, 
the Oromo students, when they graduate from college and university, they cannot get a job in the federal. So there is no, there is not enough amount of Oromos represented at the federal level in any public service. So the majority, the, the majority of the people, which are the Oromos, should have their language recogni being recognized as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a national working or official language, just as equal as Amharic, mm. so that Ethiopia can have a multiple language, right? So it's 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 uh, it's it's also about the existential the uh, the existential uh, threat that is posed to the Oromo mm. should also be mitigated by the government. So we, I personally, uh, uh, I, I personally see that the government uh, suspended the master plan or cancelled the master plan a couple of days ago. Yep. But again, th there is a reason to doubt this. The first of all. Uh, without a master plan, always the government has done land-grabbing phenomena or scenario in the country. Uh, and, and the master plan was the immediate cause. It was not a fundamental cause. Take, for example, in Gambela area, there was not a master plan when the people of Gambela were violently dislocated and dispossessed, right? And also the master plan was not in existence in, in early 2000s when the Oromos were violently dislocated from their land. There are, only law, there are already laws which really uh, expropriate the Oromo land without any kind of compensation long, long, long time ago before the master plan. So the master plan is basically, it's, it's, a, it's a facade or kind of document that tries to uh, uh, bring something new to the people under the umbrella or under the disguise of uh, urbanization development. So the, the people have a reason not to believe that without the existence of the master plan, the intention of the master plan keeps going on. So... Uh, the, the last thing that the government has to do is to reinstitute the confidence or the legitimacy that it already lost. To be quite frank with you, uh, in the Oromia region, uh, having 10,000, more than 10,000 people being imprisoned and their leaders like Bakale Garba being imprisoned, the government has already lost a legitimacy. It's very difficult for this regime to regain back that legitimacy. And, and the Oromo people have always seen this regime as uh, an equivalent uh, apartheid kind of regime in, in, in Oromia for the last 25 years. So I, it's, it's a very tough situation right now. Henok, I hear you. Um, we really appreciate that, you know, the, your work at the Oromo Studies Association publicizing these issues and, you know, giving us the important context. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have, but we'll make sure to come to you in the future as the story continues to play out. Thank you very much. I appreciate it for being invited here. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. If you're just tuning in, it's a Daily Mavic show on Cliff Central. Um, if you're just joining us, we were talking about some of the issues going on in Ethiopia around the extension of Addis Ababa's regional borders. And, it's, sorry? I was going to say it's a fascinating yeah. issue because Ethiopia, despite its track record on, on human rights, mm. which has seen um, protesters and dissenters detained, it's, it doesn't have uh, a free media or a free press, it is hailed as one as along with Rwanda, which also has its own um, own human rights issues. It's hailed as one of the African sort of economic success stories, at least. And Simon Allison, who we have frequently mm. on the show, mm. spent last year, I think, three or four months living in Addis. And he said it's fascinating being there, just seeing how much is done, how efficient the Ethiopian government is. But the question I think that's always happened with fast developing states is at what cost and how do you find that balance between development and exclusion and in this case i think i think they're they're not finding that balance i mean absolutely we asked enoch just now and he was he was just like that's not there's that trade-off is just a mythical trade-off this development is not inclusive it's just not happening and cl clearly i think the the government doesn't care about that either that is not their key focus at the moment it, the key focus is development absolutely Daily Magic Show, cliffcentral.com. Remember, you can tweet us on at DM Show ZA. You can call us on 0861 555 Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. If you're just joining us, we're going to be switching topics and talking about the Arab Spring. It's been five years since we saw that sort of momentous uh, sort of wave um, go across sort of North Africa and the Middle East area. And we'll be talking to somebody who's, you know, award-winning journalist who's covered the Egypt revolution for The Guardian and has just released his first book, The Egyptians, A Radical Story. Um, and it's written also on South Africa and some local issues too, so he might weave that in. I'd like to introduce Jack Schenker. Jack, can you hear us? I can. Thank you for having me on. Fantastic. Jack, congratulations on the book. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Jack, it's Greg here. How are you doing? 
Hi, Greg. I'm well. How are you? Good. Good to hear from you again. We may as well jump straight into it. And you were on the ground, uh, am I correct, when, when I think it was 25 January 2011, the protest in Egypt started in uh, Tahrir Square? That's right, yes. I... Uh, it began with 18 days of uh, uprising against Hosni Mubarak and then morphed into basically five years of almost unstop, uh, non-stop unrest. If, if we look at those sort of that start, those 18 days, you know, when I think, I think watching around the world, like we, we all, all of a sudden started hearing sort of murmurings of this thing of the Arab Spring. Everyone heard this phrase, uh, we are, we're all Khalid, uh, said or Sayyid. I'm not sure how to say it properly. Khalid Sayyid, yes. Sayyid. What was it like actually being there on the ground and seeing it all, witnessing it all happening? Well, uh, I wrote a piece recently trying to kind of marshal my memories of that period. And uh, I entitled it The World Turned Upside Down, because to be honest, it felt like uh, our own personal worlds were being turned upside down. And it felt as if the wider world was being turned upside down. I've never lived through anything quite like it. It was the most uh, terrifying and the most exhilarating and the most inspiring um, period of, of my life, certainly. And speaking to um, many, many Egyptians on the ground, not just those that were out protesting in the streets, you know, building barricades and fighting the police to reclaim urban space from uh, Mubarak's state, uh, but even Egyptians who stayed at home and were watching proceedings on television, they talk about this complete psychological shift. And uh, I think that sense of excitement and that sense of possibility, followed by a very, very crushing, as you know, um, counter-revolution and a, a new kind of degree of state repression, the, the contrast between those two extremes has been particularly emotionally exhausting and um, and very difficult for people to process. Some of now, now it's I guess five years on. Under the government, uh, Egypt is under the government of President Sisi. Many activists are in detention. Protests seem to be effectively banned. Am I right? And yeah, the Muslim, absolutely. the Muslim Brotherhood's political wing is also, you know, banned. And it feels I, I've read a, a number of writers sort of looking back at that time in 2011 and saying, sort of feeling almost this great sense of despondency, like the excitement they had back then was premature. But you've written, I, th I think you're writing a, a piece you did for The Guardian recently was quite interesting, and I, I assume it sort of reflects some of the tones in your book about the shifts in the factories, fields, urban streets, um, away yes. from the, the barricades and the, and, and the protests we saw on TV. Can you tell us just a little bit about how how this sort of revolution has has occurred in the minds of people not just you know not just throwing stones on the streets but across the whole country and in 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 all sort of sectors of society yeah absolutely i mean i think that the conventional narrative has been that egypt is a textbook example of of revolutionary failure really that you know it it shows that mass protest and popular resistance um never achieves anything and that business as usual politics always wins out in the end and what i try and do um in the book is show that uh that narrative although it's very comforting for elites wins inside egypt's borders and beyond is actually profoundly misleading um as you say the book tries to concentrate um, not so much on uh, Tahrir Square and kind of those young uh, protesters with their smartphones and their Twitter accounts that the world uh, zoomed in on in early 2011. Instead, I try to show that the revolution is not something that can be confined in a space like central Cairo or in a time period like early 2011. It's actually part of a far deeper and ongoing historical process in which um, millions of citizens, not just in Egypt, but right across the Arab world, are rejecting political exclusion and they're rejecting economic exclusion and they're rejecting the state violence that goes hand in hand with both. And we're, we're at the beginning of that process. It, it's bringing together democratic citizens with rulers who cannot and will not change. And that's a fundamental contradiction which hasn't been, hasn't been settled. This is not game 
game over back to square one mm. um, and so in the book what I try and do is I, I go as you say outside of Tahrir to the factories to the fields to uh, neighbourhoods where uh, communities have been resisting eviction um, to uh, poor areas where um, women who work as domestic cleaners are forming their own trade unions to you know fight for their rights um, I visit uh, some Bedouins who reclaimed uh, what they stay what they say is land stolen from them by the state uh, and the state is using to build a nuclear power plant they they stormed the site uh, beat off the army and reclaimed that land for themselves now some of these developments are transitory you know the state has fought back but what i argue in the book is that it's helping to produce this psychological shift where citizens say do you know what you don't have the right to expect unquestioned obedience from me anymore. I'm not going to accept this uh, combination of dire socioeconomic conditions and political powerlessness. I want to muscle my way onto the political stage and have a say over my environment. And that's that's a psychological shift that has blown through the family dining room and the college lecture hall and the school playground just as much as it has the corridors of government. And I think that is what is, is going to keep this process of uh, of disruption and, uh, and and contestation going. And it seems sort of an interesting phenomenon linked to, I think, what we're seeing in a number of different societies around the world, which is this sort of fight back or, or questioning of, of sort of a neoliberalist capitalism, privatization, and linked to cronyism and political exclusion. It seems to be about a part of a broader international uh, self-introspection we're having at the moment. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And um, the book very much tries to make, make that point. It, it, um, it argues that, you know, as well as being something that uh, can't be confined in space or time, it's also something, something that can't be isolated uh, inside Egypt's borders. It's part of a global moment, exactly as you say, in which I think, you know, now three or four decades of uh, aggressive neoliberal orthodoxy um, and obviously South Africa, um, you know, from the early 90s onwards has been a, a prime example of that process, mm-hmm. uh, has caused a disconnect between citizens and states that the relentless expansion of, of, of private markets, the um, belief that all social goods are are best allocated by market forces, whether you whether you agree with that economic orthodoxy or not, and, and I personally don't. I think it's undoubtedly true that it's created a huge pressure on old political models, both in the global south and the global north, both uh, autocratic regimes and kind of long, long time democracies. All over the world, we're seeing um, old political models breaking down. We've se- we're seeing maverick politicians on on both sides of the Atlantic and both sides of the political spectrum rise up. We're seeing institutional chaos in southern Europe. We're seeing the dissolution of borders in the Middle East. Now, all of these things have separate contexts of course and uh, individual localized nuances but i think they're all part of this 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 moment of of of, of global transition and glo- and global disruption and egypt is very much on that uh, moment's front line. And what I try and say in the book is, you know, when we look at the Egyptian revolution, rather than seeing it as something um, intensely local, something that can be sealed off inside its borders, we actually have to see that it it involves processes of of governance and of resistance, which implicate us all. You know, this is this this struggle belongs to all of us and we're 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 all invested in the outcome. Now, Egypt has gone through so much over the last five years, it seems difficult i imagine to predict what's going to happen next but do you do you sort of play around with different scenarios as as what you know what might happen next in egypt well the only the only thing that uh, one can definitely say of egypt is that um it will make a fool out of anyone who makes who makes <laughs> predictions i mean in 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 the late 2000s um under the mubarak regime before the revolution you had Western commentators and political analysts saying this Egypt is essentially a boring country. It's the, it's the most populous state in the Arab world. Uh, you know, you've got 80, 90 million people who are largely, um, uh, you know, acquiescent to their dictatorship. And you had international financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank saying 
economic reforms are on the right track. Uh, they called they called Mubarak's economic policies uh, prudent and impressive and bold. You had uh, the American ambassador ambassador saying Egyptian democracy is going well. Uh, and then 12 months later, you had one of the most uh, the beginnings of one of the most uh, incredible revolutions the world has ever seen. Since then, at every single stage of this kind of revolutionary turmoil, you have had people saying the the story is now at an end. Um, you know, we are back to square one. You know, first we had uh, military rule in Egypt. Then we had the rule of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now we're back to uh, an authoritarian dictator once again. And at each of these transition moments, people have said it's all over. Uh, this is the new status quo. And every single time they have been proved wrong, precisely because, as I said before, the Egyptians are unwilling to accept uh, being kind of excluded from from the political stage. Uh, and I believe that although it's impossible to predict exactly when it will happen or what the spark will be, this current regime, which has made so many promises to its people uh, on account of things like, um, you know, we're going to fight a war on terrorism, we're going to keep Egypt safe, we're going to provide economic stability. It has failed so far to live up to all of those promises. And it feels the need to use revolutionary rhetoric to establish its own legitimacy. But it, in the process, it creates a rod for its own back because people can see a, a gap between the rhetoric and reality. Um, and so I think the more people start asking questions about about that regime, the more we're going to see um, popular protests. We've already seen um, kind of limited, um, but, but 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 very very intense uh, demonstrations in certain cities over police torture, over labour conditions. Uh, last year, we even had the police on strike. We had one section of the security forces tear gassing another. These are all signs of uh, intense vulnerability at the heart of this regime, which is precisely why we're seeing such a such a huge scale of state repression. Um, so I, I do think the regime is vulnerable. I think it knows it's vulnerable. And I think it's trying to accumulate as much political and economic control now so that it can hedge against the, the future struggles on the streets, which it knows are inevitable. Sorry, uh, Jack, thanks very much. I think that's all we have time for today. Um, where no your, your, your book is available. I'm not sure if it's available in South African stores yet, but I'm sure you can buy it online and I'm, I'm definitely going to get myself a copy. Uh, it's called The Egyptians, a radical story. It's published by Alan Lane and Penguin Books. Thanks, Jack, for coming on. Thanks a lot. Fantastic. If you're just joining us, the Daily Magic Show on cliffcentral.com. We're just going into the last leg of our, of our really, really packed show. We'll be talking about uh, what's going on with the water, what some are describing as a water crisis that's being called by sort of a, ra- a racist structural situation uh, coming out of uh, Flint in Michigan in the United States. We saw a sort of famous sort of movie maker and director, Michael Moore, who I think is from that specific town, um, sort of brought a lot of popularity to it and it's it's just continued to sort of become something that's being discussed no it's a huge it's a huge issue in the states at the moment and um, we're just trying to get a hold of one of the sort of sort of big journalists that's that's um that's that's reporting on this um spongile our producer is making positive sounds at me which means <laughs> we have got him okay time to introduce okay we don't Oh, Greg, I know you've okay. been reading a bit about this. If you could just give us a quick overview while we make sure the Skype line's 100%. First of all, so we're waiting for John Counts. He's a statewide reporter um, from uh, Michigan's M Live's uh, impact team. He investigates crimes, corruptions, corruption, and other issues. And he just wrote this fantastic article on on the whole sort of as to what happened uh, recently. So I think he's with us now. Fantastic. John, can you hear us? I can hear you. How are you guys doing? Good, good. We're just finished introducing you and your incredible work uh, coming out of Flint. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Okay. okay, fantastic. Now, John, I'd love if you could just, you know, give us sort of a brief overview of what's happening. So, you know, here on our side of the world, and we're just hearing a lot of stories about lead poisoning coming out of the water system and also sort of reports that this is not just sort of a, a municipal failure on water supply and service delivery, but it actually has a big race element to it. Could you just tell us what's going on? Sure. I mean, this this dates back uh, several years. Uh, Flint is a pretty hard knock town. It's it's about an hour north of Detroit, and uh, we all know kind of like Detroit's story and Flint's story is is pretty similar. Um, it was a town that uh, uh, survived basically on auto jobs. General Motors was based there, and uh, when they started to pull out back in the day, um, you know the, the the city went into economic decline. 
Um, and it's, it's now, it's mostly black and mostly an impoverished town. Uh, but they were still on Detroit water. Detroit water covers all of South, Southeastern Michigan. Um, but it came to the point where Flint, uh, was, was pretty much bankrupt and the state appointed an emergency manager. And, uh, that, that effectively renders the mayor or any other elected officials, pretty much powerless. Mm. The emergency manager is pretty much in charge of, of everything. So back in 2013, they decided to uh, join this pipeline that was going to get their water from someplace different to save some money. And um, eventually then it's, it's kind of a complicated story, but they decided to start getting their water from the Flint River. Okay. So mm-hmm. when they made that, sw- they made that switch from Detroit water to the Flint River water in uh, April 2014. And then immediately after that, residents started complaining about about the water quality. We've seen pictures. It looks yellow, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, right after they made the switch, you know, residents would show up to city council meetings and uh, they had, you know, jugs jugs of water and it was, mm. it was discolored mm. and uh, it, it tasted bad and... Um, like you know how when it foams up doesn't it didn't foam up because of because it was so hard, mm. so people were immediately complaining about it and the state just said oh you know they would test it and be like you know th- it's still good you can keep drinking it it's no problem it's no problem, um, but you know it didn't come to light that there was lead in it not through governmental testing but through testing by the Flint residents got so upset that they. They uh, found a professor from Virginia Tech University mm. who tested the water for them and found out that there were high levels of lead in it. And even even then, they still didn't like the, the the state did not tell people to stop drinking the water. How long did it take, John, for the state to actually take these complaints seriously? You know, amazingly, they just started taking them seriously uh, uh, within the last month. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, I mean, this has been going on for for two years, um, and it. it they determined that here in Michigan we have the Department of Environmental Quality, and they're the people who are who are charged with testing the water. And it turns out that they were using the wrong federal regulations as far as lead is concerned. And so a lot of those a lot of those people have been fired, and it's you know it's kind of a, a long ongoing saga. And what's the sentiment of residents now in Flint? How how do they feel? I'd imagine they're they're pretty pissed off. Oh, they are extremely pissed off. <laughs> you know, I spent the day out there uh, a, a couple weeks, a week and a half ago when I was uh, working on this story. And uh, I, I mostly hung out at uh, fire stations where, where folks were coming to pick up bottles of water. And mm. they'd called in the National Guard. So basically, like, the Army is there handing out water. Mm. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're extremely upset. They want the, the governor here, Rick Snyder, uh, you know, from – they want him arrested or fired or mm. at the very least to resign. Mm. Um, and they, they just kind of feel that, you know, the, the government totally let them down. I mean, I, I hear you. I'm, I'm curious because, I mean, it's just, now it's just like, um, it's, I mean, it's a failing service delivery to the people around and, and what was supposed to be delivered was not. But I'm curious about the, you know, the extra consequences of that in terms of what health risks this, this water and this kind of water quality is posing to the people of Flint. Sure. So, so the high levels of lead are um, uh, they they definitely endanger uh, children, and the effects of that will not be known perhaps for years. Mm. So, that that quotient of it, it sort of remains to be seen. But in the meantime, um, they just announced within the last few weeks that there have been a spike in in deaths in that county, that Flintston Genesee, Genesee County in uh, Legionnaire's disease. Mm. So 10 people have died within since the water's been switched over, more or less, uh, from this Legionnaire's disease, and that's a, a significant spike. They have not been able to conclusively link it to the water switch, but many experts have said that it's, it, you know, it's it could, it could be because of that. Mm. Now, John... Um, I think Michigan Governor Rick Snyder has apologized, and also also I read that Michigan uh, Department of Environmental Quality Director Dan uh, Wyant has also resigned. But 
I'd imagine that surely this isn't enough. Will there be anyone else who will be held accountable for this complete uh, screw-up? Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, Snyder has, has apologized, like you said, and the, the director of the DEQ has resigned. The, the spokesman, the press, sec- the press guy for the DEQ also resigned. And uh, just recently, the um, two two unnamed uh, employees at the DEQ have also been suspended. I think it's because I'm not sure if they can't yet be terminated or or what the deal is. But they they haven't been named. But they've been they've been suspended. And I'm sure that the governor would want to just fire them, but maybe he can't. Um, and I also know the the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency which is like a federal agency, the person who is in charge of this region also has either, I, I can't remember if they've resigned or if they, they were terminated or, or what, what. but um, I expect that uh, more heads will roll as we go, uh, as we go forward here. I mean, I hear you. Um, I think what, what's, what's really been sort of a big question for me is the question of race. A lot of people are saying this is not just about governance and service delivery, but it's about race. And if that the area wasn't predominantly African-American and poor, that the response would have been quicker and very different if Flint was white. What do you say to them? Um, you know, I'm not allowed to get too much into my opinion, but uh, but absolutely. I mean, that, that that that's definitely the sentiment of the people mm. in Flint is that you know if this happened in uh, Gross Point or Birmingham, which are very white affluent suburbs of mm. Detroit. Mm. The the response would have been much quicker and much more aggressive than than waiting around and telling people that it's it's okay it's okay you know um and uh you know it should be pointed out that rick snyder is is a republican and so this is getting uh a fairly political here in in michigan as well as far as casting casting blame and who's who's defending him and who's 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 going after him obviously so but but yeah i mean the the general sentiment in michigan is that um had this happened in in a in a rich white place, it would have gotten fixed a lot earlier. I mean, I hear you, John. I mean, we've only got a minute to go, but I'm just curious what what what's the ideal situation going forward? What can be done to fix this as soon as possible? What do you think? Um, you know, this it's going to take years to fix. Is is what's what's what I'm hearing? They're yeah. going to have to replace all the old lead pipes. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, you know, just if anybody out there can, can donate some money or bottles of water to, to the Flint area, I, I would encourage that because they're going to need all the help that they can get. I hear you, John. I was hoping for a more optimistic answer, but the truth is the truth, right? John, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, perfect. Unfortunately, we've just run out of time. Remember, this is the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. You can tune in every week, Tuesdays 1 to 2 p.m. Remember to download and share the podcast far and wide. But thank you for everyone who came on. And, of course, to my co-host, Greg Nicholson. We'll see you next week. I'll be here, I guess. Good. Let's go see what's happening with the cricket. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Have a good afternoon. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.